The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our leadership. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God created man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth and to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents to cultivate the field he's called us to for his glory. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because the world needs you right now. No matter who you are, it's my prayer that as you listen and as you begin to believe, you will see yourself growing as a leader. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. So let me just, before going into the scripture, let me set it up a little bit, because um, you might not know, when I say John 9, you might not immediately know where we're going. And as I said, um, I'm not entirely sure what this teaching is about tonight. But what I do know is that it's a very complex, it's what, we're, what we're discussing this evening is quite complex, so I'm going to try and take my time. Uh, but it's quite theological as well. So if this is uh, one where you're sort of leaning back or doing other things, I mean, you might just want to uh, come back to SML at another time because this one you really need to sit up and, and, and have your notebook and your pen and your Bible and your spirit ready. So let's now begin. So in John chapter 9 we find Jesus and Jesus again is with his disciples and they're walking and when we saw, when we saw Jesus in chapter 5 of John's gospel of course he had just uh, finished healing this man at the pool of Bethesda, and we remember the story. But we find him here again in John chapter 9, also about to heal. And so we can imagine Jesus sort of doing his rounds, you know, if you've ever watched those um, medical uh, movies or TV shows where you see the, or if you've even been in the hospital when, you know, the chief physician is doing his rounds and he's being followed by his students and he goes from bed to bed and he asks the students to diagnose this and diagnose that. And so that's kind of the imagery that we have of Jesus at this moment when this chapter opens up. The great physician is, is walking, and as he's walking with his disciples, they come across a blind man. They come across a man who has been blind from birth. And so the disciples speak up and they say, Rabbi, you know, why, who sinned, this man or his parents? This, this man has been blind since he was born. He was born in this state. So was it his sin? Or was it his parents' sin that caused him to be blind? And of course, the thing that we appreciate about the disciples is, is that, you know, they, they just like us, which is why you, we should appreciate them a little bit more than perhaps we do. Just like us, the disciples are always one or two lessons behind. So they're always thinking about the last thing that Jesus did and, and are trying to apply it into, into the new situation. We remember when they crossed the Lake of Galilee and they forgot the bread and Jesus warned them against the, the yeast of the Pharisees. And they were thinking that he gave them that warning because um, they had forgotten to bring bread on the journey. But the point was is that the reason why their minds weren't really attuned to what Jesus was saying was because they had actually forgotten the miracle of the, 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 the fish, the bread and the fish. So they're always one one lesson behind. And so as they speak up in this moment, when they come across this blind man, they're remembering what Jesus just did a few chapters earlier. He healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. And then when he found him a little bit later, he warned him against continuing in his sin. Otherwise, something worse would befall him. So when they now meet this other man who's blind and he's sitting elsewhere, and we, the Bible isn't clear, we don't know how much later this is. Um, but what we can imagine is, is that 
the disciples are thinking about the earlier encounter they had of Jesus's healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. So as they meet this man, they say, Rabbi, why is this man disabled? What sin has he committed? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? Because he was born in this state. In other words, the disciples are thinking that this man's condition is sin-based. And so that's the basis of their question. So let's read the scripture, John chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to spend this precious time with you. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are already hovering over the face of this time, over the face of this lesson. And Lord, I pray that you would speak into this lesson and that you would speak illumination, that you would speak clarity, that you would be, speak truth to us, O oh Lord, that we would really grasp what it is that you are speaking to us this evening. Father, I've already said that this is a complex matter that you are presenting before us. And I know fully that it's because you are calling us into deeper waters. You want us to go deeper with you. And so, Father, we are totally willing to do that this evening. And I pray that as we do, that you would move based on our willingness, Lord, and you would open the mysteries and the treasures that you have prepared for us this evening. Father, may you touch each of your children who are gathered here this evening. May you touch them who are coming. May you touch the ones who will listen afterwards or who will take notes from another afterwards, who will seek to apply your word, Lord, to their lives. You know the reason why you are speaking this to us. You know the plans that you have for us. Good plans, Lord, to give us hope and an unexpected end. And we're just so grateful for your trust and your confidence. Lord, we know that as we leave your presence this evening, we will not leave as we came. There will be something in us that would have been changed. And so we give you, Lord, all the glory and all the adoration just for that opportunity. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed. Amen. So... Here we are. And here's the statement that I was referring to earlier. So Jesus doesn't say, make hay while the sun shines. He says, you must work while it is day. For night is coming when no man can work. And then he tells us that as long as he is in the world, he is the light of the world. And so this is interesting because it picks up on our conversation from last week as we were speaking about the seasons and as we were speaking about the need to work in alignment with the seasons. One of the things that we, we learned from the Pool of Bethesda is that the reason why that particular man was stuck for so long, sitting on his mat, lying on his mat of sloth, was because he hadn't tuned in to the seasons. We learned that as the angel of the Lord came down regularly, seasonally, to stir the waters, that anyone who had any kind of discernment, anyone who had any kind of hunger for change could position themselves, no matter their disability, they could study the signs and the times and the seasons and position themselves in order to be first into the pool. So Jesus says to us tonight that you have to work while there is light available. You have to work while it is day. And so he's speaking to us about time. It's not just about the seasons, but it's also, so not just about the seasons, the way I, I'm still using 
the northern hemisphere seasons as our framework. So summer, spring, winter, and fall, just those four very distinct changes. When we looked at the ant last week, the ant was in the book of Proverbs called wise. The sloth was warned to learn from the ant because the ant works in the summer. She collects her, her meat in the summer so that she has her storehouses full in the winter time. And so this is a little bit what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you have to work while it is day because night is coming when no man can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So not just about the seasons, but also about day and night. And so as I was thinking about that, as I was thinking about day and night and light and darkness and the seasons, I was immediately taken back to Genesis. So we're going all the way back to the very beginning. And in the beginning, we know what it says. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the, the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided light from darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Hallelujah. So one of the things that we have to see here, which again, we, we, we miss it in the English because we don't have the sense of the difference in, in the words. When we look at what is called here light, we understand that there are different words, in, there are different words in the Hebrew that get, get used for light. So in verse 3, when God says, let there be light, and there was light, the word that gets used there is actually not light the way we think about light um, as, a, as, a, as an object. It's more light as a property or as a quality. So it actually means, let there be illumination. Let there be clarity. And we lose that in the English because when God creates the, the, when God names the light day and then he names the darkness night, when we jump down to the verse 14, we see then that God creates lights in the sky. He creates the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night to rule the night. And then he places the stars to also be for times and seasons. And in the English, it's a little bit confusing to us because we just see light and light. But when we go to the original words, we see that in verse 3, what God is saying is, let there be illumination. And then clarity and order now begin to come to emerge out of the void and the darkness and the emptiness that was hovering over the earth. But in the verse 14, when God says he creates the lights to now govern the day and the night, the word that gets used there is actually luminous bodies. So these beings or these entities that have this quality of illumination, it helps to put it in scale a little bit for us. But what it also does is it helps us to understand that this opening chapter in the book of Genesis, when God is creating and the first thing he does is to separate the light from the darkness. And once he sees that the light is good, then he creates day. And then we have the, the morning and the evening, which is the first day. What God is doing in these chapters is he's not simply, um, he's not simply making order in terms of putting things in space where they belong. So separating the waters from above and the waters from below and putting the lights in there so that we can see. He's also creating time. And what's really useful for us here is to understand that there are three kinds of time. In the Greek, we have three words that refer to the different kinds of time. 
we have the word chronos. And so you can recognize the words like chronology or chronological. When we use those words in English, we're basically referring to things happening in order one after the other. But you can think about time from its beginning to its end as being a straight line that keeps moving from, from its beginning until its end. That's chronos. It is the straight continuity of time. And this is the time that gets referred to when there is illumination in verse 3, when God creates that illumination. The second word in Greek that we have to, to denote time is the word hora, H-O-R-A. And hora is the time that is marked by the seasons. So we can think about if we think about the fact that seasons cycle and remember last year when we spoke about leadership seasons you have a revolution you have a revolving set of seasons or or of times that follow one another around chronos and so the term light that gets used in the verse 14 denotes that kind of time. So these luminous bodies that were placed into the sky to be able to keep time, keep the days and the seasons and the years, those are the luminous bodies that are set to measure or to count hora, count the seasonal times, the, regularly, the regularly recurring times. So if we take Kronos to be our straight line from its beginning to its end, then we can think about Hora as being this circular pattern that revolves around Kronos. Okay, so I hope that you're following me. Kronos, straight line, just think in three dimensions from its beginning to its end, time. Hora, time revolving or circling around chronos, the seasons, the revolving, repeating, recurring sets of time. And then we have the third kind of time, which is kairos. And kairos is what we referred to last week. Kairos is the set time or the appointed time. And so, in fact, I made an error when I said to you that when the angel of the Lord came down and stirred the waters, and that represented the Kairos time. It actually didn't represent the Kairos time. It represented the Hora time because they could, they could recognize the season when that angel would come down. But when Kairos time happens is when Jesus steps in to a situation to change or to maximize or to accelerate a particular event that is meant to take place where Kronos and Hora intersect. I hope you're with me. The reason why this is important is because when Jesus shows up is the Kairos time. The man at the pool of Bethesda had been sitting in Kronos for 38 years. He had been ignoring the horror that kept happening over and over again. But then one day he gets his kairos. It's when Jesus shows up at that pool and asks him, do you want to be healed or not? And so this is important for us when we study Jesus' statement, when he says, you must work while it is yet day, because the night is coming when no man can work as long as I am in the world I am the light of the world. So Jesus is giving us an insight into Genesis that when light comes, light is actually stepping into this chronos and this horror. And you have to make sure that you are working in that moment as long as Jesus is in the world. He's the light of the world. Because when the, when the night comes, he says, no man can work. So what does any of this have to do with our leadership? One of the most important things that we have to notice about John chapter 9 is that it actually follows John chapter 8. So it's actually a, a continuation of what happens in John chapter 8. 
And what happens in John chapter 8? In John chapter 8, we have a series of conversations. It's one long conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. The Pharisees at this point are getting increasingly irritated and aggravated, aggressively so, about the kinds of claims that Jesus is making. In other words, they are in conflict over his identity. There's a conflict between the old ways, the way of the temple, the way of the law, and the new ways. Because at the in, in John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus speaks to them and he says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And then that's when the Pharisees begin to accuse him. And if you read it, and I just encourage you when you get home this evening to actually read chapters 8 and 9 in their entirety, because you get a real sense of how vicious this exchange was. I mean, it, it, it was almost like a court case, you know, um, the, the accusations going back and forth. And the Pharisees didn't believe what he said. They accused him of blasphemy. They said, we don't know where you're from. This is the place where they have that argument about who Jesus' father is. The Pharisees know that their father is Abraham. Jesus says, your father is not Abraham. If he was, you would do what your father did. Your father's the devil. And then it just goes on from there. But the point is, is that this conflict that's happening in that conversation that then leaks over into the chapter 9 is a conflict about identity. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth and the life, even as the old guards are trying to defend the old ways of being. They're in this conflict over Jesus's identity because Jesus represents this new way of being. This conflict is actually a conflict between light and darkness. The fact that the darkness does not comprehend the light and is seeking to cast it out. But where this touches you is because you have to understand that when you begin to be a leader in Christ, that there follows you a conflict about your identity, about who you are when you now are leading from this place of light, once you've stepped out of the old way into the new way. And if that sounds dramatic, it's meant to be, because we have to understand that actually this leadership assignment is nothing short of that. It is fundamentally an identity conflict between darkness and light. And the reason why we find this in John's gospel is that John is the writer who had this revelation, who had this revelation of Jesus as the Son of God. And in that identity, John was able to understand the luminosity, the illumination that that identity brings. When we start reading John, John says, in the beginning, so John goes back to that, that revelation from Genesis. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Hallelujah. So John opens his account by speaking about this quality, this property of God's light. And as Jesus being the embodiment, being the son of God, not just being the son of man, not just being the son of David, but actually being this God who created in the beginning and said, let there be light. When we turn to John chapter 3, John continues in the verse 19, Jesus is speaking. 
And he says, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, let his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Amen. And John continues in the verse 12. I'm just reading these to you for you to understand the depth to which John was moved by this revelation of Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as being the carrier of light, all those other scriptures that we have that speak about God sitting in unapproachable light. In John chapter 12, verse 35, he writes, Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. So Jesus would drop these parables about the light and walking in the light and being in the light, and then he would hide himself. And so as I said, when I started this, when I, when I sat down and I was in this preparation, I wrestled with this teaching. I, have, I had no clue, and I still, as I said, have not grasped it, and I look forward to teaching this again when I will understand it a bit more. But I did not know what this teaching was about. I did not know how this related to leadership. I did not know how this picked up from where we left off last week. And then the revelation that I had was that this lesson is about spiritual blindness. So we've started with this man who was born blind, and Jesus says to his disciples when they ask about the man's sin that no, this man did not sin, nor did his parents sin, but he's got this blindness in order to show off the works of God. That's where we open this evening. And when we were at the Pool of Bethesda last week, we saw that some of them who were gathered there were also blind. And when we spoke about the blindness of leadership, we were speaking last week simply about the lack of vision or the lack of clarity. But tonight we're going to speak about this blindness as a spiritual blindness, as one of the disabilities that can be so damaging to your leadership. And it's not simply the risk of your own spiritual blindness, but it's also the risk of the blindness that surrounds you, the blindness of those leaders who are around you. Because elsewhere, Jesus speaks about the blind leaders of the blind. And, he, and, and he's speaking about the Pharisees there. I think it's in Matthew somewhere. And he says that when the blind leads the blind, both end up in the ditch. But the, the, the term he uses is blind leaders of the blind. So we know that this spiritual blindness actually does have something to do with leadership. So what exactly is spiritual blindness? If we just pick up where we left off in John chapter 12. If I read from the verse 37 now, it says, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah says again, He hath blinded their eyes, and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, that they would be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, when he saw his glory, speaking of God, and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So the risk in those days for the leaders, we remember Nicodemus, who also is spoken of in John's gospel. 
is that there are many who were in leadership who believed the new way that Jesus was presenting, but for fear of offending the old guard, they couldn't confess it. In other words, they allowed the spiritual blindness to infect them. They allowed themselves to be, um, what's the word, when you are uh, contagious. They, they caught this contagion of the, the local blindness. So spiritual blindness is the, it's the inability or the disability to see, to see what God is doing, to perceive what he's doing. And even if you believe it, having the fear to confess it for the, for the, the fear of being cast out, being rejected by the old ways. And so we see this connection as Jesus opened up in the beginning of chapter 9. We have day. We have light, we have seeing, and we have work. And so the light is given for this season of working. But the identity conflict comes once you begin to see. And so if we return now to this text in chapter 9, what happens to this man who's been born blind, who's about to have this encounter with Jesus? If you know the story, you remember that Jesus spits on the ground and he makes a clay and he applies the clay to the man's eyes. Now this is a miracle and this is amazing because we know that naturally, if we get dirt in our eyes, it will momentarily blind us. No one ever gets dirt in their eyes and can see through the dirt or can see better. And yet here we have the picture of the God of Genesis, the creating, creative God, again, taking the clay. And here he's restoring. He's taking clay and he's applying it to the marred clay, to the sinned clay, to the broken clay, to this clay that was born blind. He restores the sight by adding a new clay. And he sends the man, he tells him to go to the pool. So here now we have the echoes from chapter 5. In chapter 5 they were sitting, the disabled were sitting by the pool of mercy. In chapter 9 they're not by a pool but they come across this blind man and Jesus sends him after he applies the clay to his eyes. He says go and wash in the pool Siloam. And Siloam is they tell us in the Bible that it translates to sent. In other words, this blind man is sent to wash in the pool called sent. And why Siloam was um, significant in those days, if you remember your, I think, Kings or Chronicles, probably in both, you remember when the Assyrians came and the king, Hezekiah at the time, dug uh, he dug tunnels in order to cut off the waters so that as the city was being um, besieged by the Assyrians, they would not be able to cut off their water source. So those waters, they channeled them and, and were able to um, dig tunnels and channel them into the walled city of Jerusalem back in Hezekiah's days. And so the river, the, the pool Siloam is actually, was actually fed by those waters. And so this, that, that was the significance to the inhabitants of Israel at the time. But because they were flowing waters, because it was water that, you know, moved, it wasn't stagnant waters. The waters of Siloam were also thought to be living waters. So we see these two differences, and I want just just spend a few minutes contrasting the man at the pool of Bethesda with the man who goes to the pool of Siloam. So let's look at these two differences between Bethesda man and Siloam man. We remember from last week that Bethesda man was resting on sloth in the middle of grace and mercy, whereas Siloam man goes when he is sent. Jesus applies the clay and he says, go, and the man goes. So that's the first difference. One, Jesus finds a man lying down in the midst of grace and mercy. The other, Jesus sends him to the pool called Scent, and the man goes. The second difference between these two men, 
was that Bethesda man did not recognize his encounter with Jesus for what it was. When the Pharisees found him later and they asked him who, who healed him, who brought about this uh, transgression on the Sabbath, who did this to you? Bethesda man had no clue who it was. When we read the story in chapter 9, we find that after the man can see, and we'll talk about that uh, in just a moment, but Jesus finds him later. And when this man, when Siloam man is asked, who healed you? He's able to say the man called Jesus. So even if Siloam man didn't know anything about Jesus, he what he did know, and he confesses it, he, he well, let, well let, let's get there, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But that's the difference between these two men in terms of recognizing their encounter with Jesus. The third difference between Bethesda man and Siloam man is that Bethesda man goes back to the old ways. He is found in the temple. When he gets his healing, he goes back to the old order. He goes back to the old guard. Siloam man doesn't. And it tells us not that he is in the temple, but it tells us that the Pharisees, they heard and they came to check out this uh, what should have been a miracle, but again was a transgression because it happened on the Sabbath. And we should take note of the fact that Jesus did so much of his healing, so many of the recorded healings, he did them on the Sabbath. And we have to just imagine that he did it on purpose, not only to challenge the authorities of the day, but also to free the captives. Remember when we had our lesson on the healing stretch, that in God's eyes, to heal is not a work. To heal is to grant liberty. And so Jesus had no qualms and no issues with healing on the Sabbath. So what is, what, what, what is the point? Two points that we want to make as we contrast Bethesda man with Siloam man. The first is that if we look at Siloam man, who in his blindness and with the application of the clay, he goes as he is sent. The first point that we can take from that is that obedience to the commission will give the leader sight, will give the leader vision. So we're speaking about spiritual blindness in the perspective of leadership. And if we imagine that Siloam was a leader and that he followed Jesus's instructions, then we can see that obedience to the commission will give the leader sight. But what's the second point that we want to make, which is maybe less pleasant, which is that as a leader, once you begin to see clear, once you have illumination, and once you come out of that darkness into the light, they will start talking about you. They, <laughs> the proverbial they, who's they? They, the authorities, the powers, those who are around you, they will begin to talk about you. And what we see in the chapter is we see that the people who were around the blind man, they started speaking about him. But, and it's so interesting that they didn't actually speak to him. So they start whispering. When he, after he washes in the pool of Siloam and his sight is restored, he's seen around. And the people begin now to debate his identity. Some of them say, is this the blind man? Is this the man who was blind from birth? Is this the man who was begging? And they say, yeah, some of them say, yeah, it's him. Others say, no, no, it's not him. And he, it just looks like him because that, that guy was blind and this guy sees, so it, it can't possibly be him. And so they're debating amongst themselves until finally the man says, no, it's me. And so this is just the beginning of the conflict, the beginning of the identity conflict, that once you begin to now see clear, once you begin to move in vision, move out of spiritual blindness, this debate erupts, but they never come to you directly. It will be swirling, the talk will be swirling around you. And you have to be the one to tell them now who you are. As a side note, let's just notice that Blindness was never cured under Moses. So in fact, when Jesus appears in Israel and he starts healing people and starts giving people their vision back and cripples start to walk again and people who've been bent over start to stand up straight again, we take it for granted as we read the Bible because we say, yeah, it's the Bible. 
But we have to imagine that nothing like this had ever happened in Israel before. That all of them who were blind under Moses, they remained blind. All of those who were crippled under Moses, under the law, they remained crippled. And so, this is the significant part of the prophecies of God in terms of the coming Messiah. We have all of those Psalms that speak about God opening the eyes of the blind. And so when you start leading in Christ, you become the light of the world. That's what he says, right? In, in Matthew, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But then he says, you are the, you are the light of the world, a city set upon a hill. But isn't it strange that Jesus should call you and I lights of the world when he calls himself the light of the world? He says, I am the light of the world. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of it. So how can he call you the light of the world and call himself also the light of the world? The clue for us, we find it in 2 Corinthians, and I quoted this last week, but now we're going to quote it in, in context and a little bit longer. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, is that scripture that tells us that as we behold him, we become like him, that we are being changed by his Holy Spirit from glory into glory. That's what 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says. But if we... Read it in a little bit more depth. I'm just looking for that chapter. What does Paul say? He starts in the verse 14 and he says, But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament which veil is done away in Christ. Let me read this one in the NIV so that the English is a little bit simpler. But what Paul is saying is, is that the reason why they didn't understand is that there was a veil over their hearts. There was a veil over their hearts, still speaking about this point that no one was ever healed under Moses, that the law didn't actually remove blindness. So Paul says in the verse 14, he says, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then here comes the verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, meaning we behold Jesus, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, when we behold Jesus, we are being transformed. If we're looking at his glory, we are becoming his glory. So that's why he can tell us that he is the light of the world. And you are the light of the world. When you begin to lead in him, when you begin to behold and contemplate him, you are changing into his light. You're not only stepping into the light and stepping out of darkness, but you are beginning to reflect his light. And so this conflict of identity is nothing less than this battle between the darkness of the old way that remains covered and the light of this new way of seeing. Ephesians 4.18 goes further, and Paul says, having, the under having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. And the word there that gets used for blindness in the Greek is the word porosis. And you can recognize that word. It means stoniness or, or stiffness. So if you think about something like osteo porosis. You hear it. It's the stiffening of the bones. It means hardness. When we think about porosis that way, if the, if the heart is to become por por porose, if it's become stiff, stony-like, we can think about 
when something turns to stone, we, it, it, it's called, it's being calcified. It's being petrified. The reason why Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt when she looked back, she grew hard-hearted at having to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. She, and, and she calcified, she petrified. But not only does porosis mean hardness or stoniness or stiffness, it also means dullness or stupidity. So this is why this word speaks to us about what happens in spiritual blindness, that it's the dulling of the mind. It's the stoniness. It's the turning into stone of the mind. And this is what happens in the dark. But when you begin to lead in the light and you begin to now overcome this hardness, overcome this disability, there are a few things that happen. The first, we see the conversation that this man who was born blind has with the people who were around him. They never knew him. And they prove that they never knew him because they begin debating over his identity. Is it him? Is it not him? Then they call his parents and they ask the parents to say, is this your son? And the parents say, well, yes, it is our son. But the parents also are afraid of the Jewish authorities. So they say, well, we know that this is our son, but as to how he got his sight, we don't know. But he's of age, so let him defend himself. He's on his own. So this society of people who are around you, as you begin to step into the light and as you begin to lead from light, they will prove that they never knew you. They never knew your true identity. They'll put you on trial. Just as Jesus is being put on trial when you read the chapter 8. When you read the chapter 9 and you read the exchange of the Pharisees with this man, with his parents, you see that the tone of the exchange is the same. They want to know how the healing was done. They want to know who did it, on whose authority did this happen. And the man says, and, and, they, and they, they're trying to get him to negatively confess Jesus. They try to shame the man and they say, you know, give glory to God. This man is a sinner. How did you get your sight? And the blind man says, look, I, I don't know whether he's a sinner or whether he's not a sinner. I know that no sinner can perform these kinds of miracles. Only them who are from God can. But what I really know is that before I was blind, but now I can see. And he's the one who gave me my sight. And then this man is cast out of the synagogue. The threat was that anyone who confessed Jesus would be cast out of the synagogue. So not simply just being asked to leave church, but, but being excommunicated out of the society. This man's parents feared that, so that's why they didn't speak. Those Pharisees who actually in their spirits believed Jesus, believed his miracles, like Nicodemus, they did not speak because they belonged to the society. And so now we begin to understand how deep the call into light is. And we see this in two places. We see this in Mark chapter 8, verse 23, where Jesus heals another blind man. But what we see with him there is he actually takes this man by the hand and he leads him out of his hometown and he spits in the man's eyes and he asks the man if he can see. The man says, well, I see men, but they look like trees. And Jesus spits again. And then the man can see now clearly he's come totally out of his spiritual blindness. And Jesus says, look, don't go home. <laughs> Do not go back to your hometown. Why? Because now you can see. Now you are in the light. Now you have illumination. Now you have clarity. They are still porosed. This is why in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord calls Abram and he says, you have to go. You need to leave your father's house. You need to leave your kin. You need to leave your country. Why? Because I'm going to show you something. In other words, I'm going to give you sight that you've never had before. And so the leader in Christ, 
does two things. The first is that the leader in Christ is the one who will break the light barrier. And the leader in Christ is the one who will chip away at the hardness of false religion. John already told us that when light shines in the darkness, that the darkness cannot comprehend it. That we as sinful people, we, what we don't understand, we tend to fight, we tend to demonize. And this is what Jesus was warning the Pharisees about when we get to the end of that chapter 9. After there has been this intense debate back and forth over the man's identity. Then Jesus says, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, you should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. What does Jesus mean here? He's saying that because the Pharisees, because the leaders still thought that they were in the light, they thought that they were impervious to darkness, they didn't confess their disabilities. And so Jesus said, for that reason, you are still in your sin. And so we have to understand that for the leader who is in Christ, you're called to break this light barrier. And as we're closing, we're going to look at 1 John. Again, just appreciating how much John caught this revelation of Jesus as being the Son of God, Jesus being the, the light from the beginning. And in, his, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is what he says. He says, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So this was what the Pharisees were guilty of. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. So I want you, leader, to be encouraged, to know that you are the light of the world, just as Jesus was, and that the conflict that you are sensing around you is because of this battle between the light and the darkness. And your call to your assignment, your call to your leadership is nothing short of this battle between light and darkness. So what do you have to do? You have to break the light barrier and you have to be willing to fight against the porosis, the hardness of hearts and the hardness of false religion and the hardness of the authorities, the principalities that are going to come against you and question and challenge your identity as you begin to move out of the darkness and as the scales begin to fall from your eyes. Whereas once you were blind, as you keep beholding Jesus in your leadership, as you begin to be transformed increasingly from glory to glory, from light to light, that you will see that you've become totally transformed and you will find yourself in that light. Amen.